0: how to play episode 11 abstract games hello again everyone and welcome to the how to play podcast this is your host Ryan Sturm coming to you from Buffalo New York this episode was recorded on January 31st 2010 so welcome if you haven't listened before this podcast is about teaching and learning games you know, typically on this show I take one meaty game and I really break it down with a full rules explanation and beginning strategy and related musing. So if you're interested in one of the more complex games, go take a look at our earlier episodes. But for today I'm going to do something a little bit different. There was a survey there on the How to Play Guild on you know what you like about the show and how you use the show. One of the most popular responses was to find out about new games. Well, I've got a treat for you today. This episode is going to have five whole games. And the theme I'm using today is abstract games. I like the irony there. Hopefully there are five games you haven't heard about or played, and and maybe I can introduce you to one of these great games. The five games I'm going to talk about today are Take It Easy, Uptown, Blocus, and yinch, in that order. So all these games are abstract games. Let's define abstract games, just in case someone doesn't know what I'm talking about. Abstract means that the games aren't trying to be anything other than just a game. The game doesn't try to represent building train networks or building up civilizations or flying spaceships. The game's just about, say, moving black and white pieces around the board or laying tiles in order to accomplish the objective of the game and to win. I'm going to talk more about abstract versus thematic games in the musing section. And a lot of times these games will have a shorter playing time, and what's nice is they'll have just a few rules. They're easy to explain, but usually they're strategically very deep. And the more you play them, the more you get into that strategy. I think a lot of gamers discount these abstract games as the theme is the thing that appeals to many of the players to pick up some of the games. I know that I did. I, I think I was prejudiced against abstract games. Uh, you know, I was thinking about my history of playing chess and checkers and being kind of bored by, you know, how unappealing, dry sort of they were compared to some of the other games I'd been playing. But I started looking at some of the more modern abstract games mostly because I was looking to buy some games for the game club I run for kids at school. And When I started playing them you know, I, I realized how great some of these new abstract games are. So I hope from this episode you'll be interested in checking out one or more of these games that I discussed today. So the structure for this show is a little bit different. We're not going to do a hook meet hamster. I'm going to try to wrap it all into one. When explaining an abstract game like this with very few rules, you don't need sort of the structured, regimented approach as much as I, I use in the other episodes. You know, I'll try to keep the explanation as brief as possible, and I won't really get into strategy that much because in a lot of these abstracts, that's part of the fun of playing the game: is you learn the strategy as you play. For each of the explanations, I'm going to tell you first what's in the box, then give you a basic idea what the game is about, then tell you how do you play, and then some footnotes about this game, maybe some related games and other comments I have about the game. Then after all the games have been discussed, in the musings, I'll have some short thoughts about abstract versus thematic games. First of all, as always, we need to get to a complexity rating, and this is the great news. For the first time in a long time here on How to Play, we have some green circle games. That means games that anyone can play. You can play them with your family, you can play them with non-gamers, you can play them with just about anybody because they just have very few rules and usually have a very short playing time. However, usually all these games have quite a bit of a learning curve, that someone who's played these games 10, 20, or 30 times is going to have a distinct advantage on someone who's just learning the game. So, as we discussed earlier in an earlier episode, if you can, you really want to experience these games together with another player or with a group of players, so that you can all get better at the game at the same time. All right, let's get to it with game number one. Take it easy! Alright, so Take It Easy is for 2-6 to players but the unique nature of the game means that if you had multiple copies of the game you could play this with 8, 10, 12, 15 people at a time. And a round takes about 15 to 20 minutes but usually you'll have so much fun you'll want to play a few rounds. So what's in a box of Take It Easy? Each player will have an individual player board and a set of tiles. The board is sort of a grid of hexagons with five columns of hexagons, making a honeycomb shape. So you have a column of three, then a column of four, five, four, three. So you have this grid of hexagons with 19 smaller hexagons inside. Each player will have an identical set of 27 tiles. And the tiles have three lines that cross, one that goes up and down, one that goes from the bottom left to the top right, and one that goes from the top right to the bottom left. Each of those lines will have a color on it. The up and down lines is either going to be one of three numbers and colors. So the up and down line on each tile is either gonna be yellow and have the number nine, black and have the number one, or silver and the number five. And those are set up like that for the scoring. I believe the one that goes diagonally left to right, one of them is eight, six, three, and the other one might be seven, four, two. Okay, so what is Take It Easy about? This is essentially bingo with decisions. In this game, everyone has the same tiles. Everyone's playing with the exact same tiles as they're called out one at a time. And everybody has to decide where they want to place them on the board. Now since there are 19 different choices for each tile, there's an endless amount of configurations you could put these tiles on the board. The game is about laying those tiles so that you're giving yourself the highest probability to score the most points. How do you score points? Well, remember how I said that up and down line has a color and a number? It's either gonna be one, five, or nine. You're trying to get all of those numbers in an unbroken line from top to bottom because that will score you points. That middle line in your board is five hexes big. And so if you get all those tiles to be a nine up and down, you're gonna score the nine times the number of tiles. So nine times five is 45. Same thing, let's say I got the ones. The ones are the black color. And I had that just the shorter column of three tiles. And I had one, one, one. Well, that's only worth three points, but it's better than nothing. Now if I had a 1 and then a 9 and then a 1, you don't have a solid line, so you score no points for that line. So the goal is to get as many of the colored lines complete as possible by the end of the game. And that would make it pretty easy, you know, you just try to get those 9s in as many lines as possible. But of course you have the other two side to side lines that you want to get connected as well, you know, some one of them has 7s and the other one has 8s going the other direction. So you need to consider all three lines as you're choosing which of the 19 spots to place your tile one at a time as we go. So how do you play Take It Easy? Well, the flow of play works like this. You'll have one person who's designated as the caller. And they'll take all their tiles and they'll randomize them and flip them face down. Everyone else will keep their tiles organized into nice stacks. One of the ways to organize it is, is to put all the tiles with a one in one pile, fives in one pile, and nines in another pile. So the caller will randomly choose a tile, say a nine, seven, eight so everyone who's playing the game will find their 978 tile so this is how everyone is using the exact same tiles but eventually for sure people will place them different places on their board so people will have made different choices to create this different board and you see who was able to score the most points by the end so once everyone has decided where to put that 978 tile they put that down and once it's down you can't move it and then the caller will pick up a new tile and you will continue until you fill up your whole board. Now remember there are 19 spaces on the board and you have 27 tiles. So you're only going to get to about two-thirds of the tile. so you need to consider that as you're playing things on the board. One of the things is there are one, five, and nine tiles. The one, five, and nine go up and down. You're not allowed to rotate the tiles uh, to put the five line go side to side. That would just make there be an infinite number of possibilities and actually it makes it it's difficult enough as it is to decide where to put that tile to go so you can't rotate it the one five and nine has to go up and down and that's gonna help you increase your odds of being able to make these solid lines going across the board and then when you're done everyone will take turns one at a time uh, scoring up and you'll probably want a paper and pad to add all this up so again you multiply the line value say it was a six and it went across a row of four so it would be 4 tiles with 6, 4 times 6 is worth 24 points. Again, if you had a 6, a 6, a 3, and a 6, you had a 3 tile in the middle there, that row would be worth no points. So usually everyone has at least 4 or so lines that score, some people might have 6 or 7. And you calculate up the value of all that, and whoever has the highest score is the winner. Footnotes. I love this game. This is a great game. The first couple times my wife and I broke this out, I just had a smile on my face. I just had a great time playing it. Because with each tile, you have to make a tough decision. Do I try to get a 9 on the long column the five column or maybe should i try to do three shorter rows of nine to give me 27 plus 27 maybe i'll try to put nines on the edge on the left side nines on the edge on the right side do i complete my four row or do i take that eight and try to set up a longer eight row each tile presents an interesting decision that you have to make in about 10 seconds. And I just love the fact that everyone has the same set of tiles and you get to see at the end of how the other players arrange that same set of tiles to score more points. It's a brilliant game idea and you can play this with anybody you can play it with large groups the game itself you buy one copy it has six boards in it not a lot of games play with six you know so you can just break this out play a round or two maybe while you're waiting in between games or at a party or whatnot I've considered picking up three more copies of the game and just playing it with my whole class because I love the mathematics that are involved in this game you have the probability choices of How likely are certain things to happen? And then that final scoring is just a lot of math. Great for those kids practicing those multiplication facts. And then finally adding up, you know, 27 plus 45 plus 16 and whatnot. Also those of you who are looking for a solitaire game, just something to do on your own, this is a perfect solitaire game. You can just play it by yourself, try to maximize your score, and try to go for a high score. For those who want even more to their game, there are variants included in the game there's actually a sun and a moon on some of the different tiles and so you can increase the complexity of the game by adding these sun and moon components and that you're trying to get not only the colors to match up but also the sun tiles and the moon tiles to make lines. I've found the basic game enjoyable enough as it is but if you want it it's there. And then there's the more advanced game for the uh, true brainiacs and that's called Take It to the Limit and basically it takes take it easy and it giant sizes it now instead of a 19 tile board you have a 37 tile board with tiles that go from 1 to 12 there's like little bonus tiles and it just kind of supersizes the game personally i like the game the size it is you know it takes about 15 minutes to play around there's enough going on there as it is and for what you want it for you know just a casual game for non-gamers or family I think it's just perfect the way it is. But if you love the game and you want more, then there is that option for take it to the limit. But that's it, that's take it easy. I hope you'll look into that one. Let's move on to game number two. Game number two is Uptown. This is another tile lane game and it will remind you of Sudoku Puzzles because it's got this grid of 81 squares. It's best with four or five players, but you can play with two or three. And again, it plays in about 20 or 30 minutes. So what will you see in the box of Uptown? Like I said, the board is a grid of 81 squares. And they're divided into three different categories. There's rows named A to I. The top row is A, next B, and so on. So the rows are labeled with letters. The columns are labeled with numbers, one to nine. The first column on the left side is column 1, 2, 3, 4, and so on. Then each cluster, I suppose, is called a symbol group. So the upper right squares have a picture of a dude with a tuxedo on. And the nine squares in the middle of the grid have pictures of skyscrapers on them, etc. They have other ones like there's a saxophone group, there's a diamond ring group, there's a flapper lady, etc. So then each player gets a tile rack and you have a set of colored tiles. In your set, you have 28 tiles. You have nine tiles with letters, A to I, nine tiles with numbers, one to nine, a set of the nine symbols, and a dollar sign, which is a wild So what is Uptown about? Well in this game, you're trying to create your colored tiles into the fewest number of groups as you can. A group being tiles that are orthogonally adjacent to each other. But the tiles can only be placed in whatever row or area that it shows on the board. And since those rows are all over the board, in order to get all your tiles together there in a group can be very challenging and exciting. Now you just don't get to pick any tile you want. You only get five tiles at a time. You have a rack and the beginning of the game you pick up five and you put it in your rack. And on your turn you place one of your tiles there of the five and you choose a new one. So I might have the A tile and I could take that A tile and put it on any square in the top row. And then I draw a new tile, fill my rack up to five, and that's my turn. Then maybe next turn I would have a five tile and I put that five in the column there, maybe in the second row there so those two tiles were adjacent. I want to try to get those tiles to be adjacent as much as possible. So everyone plays one tile a turn in turn order and that's pretty much the game. The object is to have the fewest groups. Now eventually other players will get in your way. Now luckily you are allowed to play over or capture other players' tiles. So let's say I have my B piece, and I can just put my B piece on top of the other players. I take their piece then, and I put it in front of me. Now the only rule to this is that you can't split their tiles into two groups. So say for example, Plato is playing a game, and Plato has three tiles together in a line. Aristotle comes in, Aristotle could capture the top tile, or the bottom tile, but he couldn't capture the middle tile because that would be splitting his group from one group to two groups. Now that rule can be kind of annoying, but you can also use it to your strategic advantage in the way you play tiles. You can play them so that you know people can't bust you up. And that's pretty much the whole game. You're going to play until you play all but only four of your tiles. So that's the hard part. You kind of have to get all over the board. But if you really have a couple loser tiles, you can just sit on those and hope to never play those. And the fewest groups wins. Usually someone will have maybe two or three groups of tiles together. Remember, a group is orthogonally adjacent. If something is diagonally adjacent, it's considered a separate group. If there's a tie, and ties are pretty common since the winning score is usually like 2 or 3, the tiebreaker is how many captured tiles the players have. Whoever has the fewest number of captured tiles wins in a tiebreaker situation. So that's a reason why you really want to limit the amount of tiles you're capturing from the other players. So that's Uptown. Play tiles on the board and try to have the fewest groups. Simple game, but a whole lot of fun. Footnotes on Uptown. This is a really fun game for four or five. Like I said, you can play it with two or three. Um, When you play with three, I think the board is a little bit too open. It's not quite as tight and fun as it is with four or five. If you play it with two, you each have to play with two colors, which is okay, it works pretty well. Sometimes following whose turn it is gets a little bit tricky. And then there's kind of an interesting rule, actually, is when you play with two, you can't capture your own pieces. So you need to be aware of that as you play the pieces. If you put one of your blue pieces down and you're also orange, you're never gonna be able to go over that with orange. So in order to play both of these colors and stay out of each other's way is actually a challenge in its own right. Though you really, if you can wanna play this game with four. This is a wonderful, elegant little game. Right now, also, I think it's relatively cheap. You could pick it up online for 10 bucks, which is well worth uh, the, the enjoyment you're gonna get from this game, so check it out. Game number three I'm gonna talk about is Blokus. Blocus is a wonderful game and what's surprising about it is here in America you can get it pretty much anywhere. Now normally that's a bad thing. Any game you can find in your Walmart or Target you want to avoid at all costs. And I think I stayed away from it mostly just for that reason. I mean if, if Walmart is selling it, how good can this game really be? And I did pick up a copy of this from my game club and sat down and my wife and I played it. And I was just blown away. This is a fantastic, elegant little game. The game has really one rule, and the gameplay is brilliant. If you've not played this game yet, you really need to give it a shot and experience it. A game lasts only about 30 minutes. The only real downside about Blocus is you really want just four players to play the game. It works perfectly with four players exactly. So what does Blocus look like? Inside the game, you're gonna get this gray sort of inset square grid board. It's 20 little squares on a side, 20 high, 20 long. So 400 squares. And everybody has this container of cool Tetris-like pieces. They're kind of translucent, and they're red, blue, yellow, and green. And the pieces are different formations of one to five little squares that are connected. For example, you might have five little squares in a long line. Or you might have four little squares in a long line and one square coming off the edge, sort of like a little L shape. Or maybe you have four squares in a two by two square shape. Or maybe you have three squares in a little L shape. And you even have one little bitty square piece. So what is blocus about? Well, this game's about getting as many of the pieces as you can on the board. Whoever has the fewest squares left in their pieces will win the game. For example, if you have a five-piece and a four-piece, your final score would be nine squares. And whoever has the least amount of squares left on their pieces wins the game. So how do you play Blokus? Well, each player has to start from one of the corners of the board playing one of their pieces. Now this is the thing I love about this game. There's really only one major rule you have to remember. When you play a piece, you must play it in such a way that you only touch your colored pieces at the corners. Or touch it so that it's diagonally adjacent to at least one of your other pieces. You may never touch any of your colored pieces orthogonally. Now I just want to take a break here and express my love for the word. Orthogonally, Now, orthogonal adjacent means touching next to side to side or up and down, just in case no one's familiar with that word. It's really a great word. It has very little purpose other than, say, explaining games or maybe, you know, technical mathematics. But I just love it, and you, you seem so smart when you say it. Orthogonally. It must be orthogonally adjacent. Okay, so back to the game. You must touch your colored piece At at least one corner or vertex, but you may not touch your piece's edges. Now you may touch any of the other color's pieces as much as you want. So in order to get all of those pieces down, you need to spread yourself out as much of the board as possible. And don't let the other players box you in. And be careful not to box yourself in. And that's pretty much the whole game. You'll learn that you have to kind of go through other pieces to fit into the nooks and crannies left on the board where you can. To start off, it will seem pretty much random. People will be playing, there'll be all sorts of space. But before you know it, that whole board gets clogged up really fast and people will be flipping and rotating those pieces, holding them up to try to figure out where they can most efficiently get them on the board and leave them somewhere else to go on the board. When a player can no longer legally play a piece on the board, they're just out of the game and the other players keep playing until no one can play a piece anymore. And then everyone counts up their pieces. You do want to make players aware of some really basic strategy when they're starting out with this game. Two things. You want to try to get to as much of the board as possible. So at the beginning of the game, you want to sort of make your way towards the center and try to make your way to the different corners of the board. Also, tell new players that you want to use those large pieces, the pieces made up of five small squares. You want to use those first try to get as many of those on the board as you can before resorting to the smaller pieces because those are easier to get on the board. And you have those small one square and two square pieces, you want to save those for when you have no other good moves left on the board. I call those the emergency pieces. And that's pretty much it, that's Blokus. If you haven't played Blokus yet, give it a shot. You won't be sorry. Footnotes. Like I said, this is really just a four player game. You can play it with three but then you have to play with this dummy rule where players take turns playing the fourth color so everybody plays a piece and then one person will play one of the green pieces and you'll, you'll do that and so on just to fill up the rest of the board because if you play with just three colors the board is too big and it won't be quite as fun. You can play it with two using two different options you can either have each player play two different colors or you can take your normal version take one of the colors of pieces and block it off into something like a 13 by 13 grid instead and then you can play with just two colors and it will work out okay now actually there's a commercial version I think it's called travel blocus for two players and basically it's just that board that's cut down to 13 by 13 Now, you don't have to buy that if you have the regular version. Just take your green pieces and cut off the board so it's a 13 by 13 grid and and boom, you're good to go. But I think it really kind of loses something. This game is really meant for exactly four and it just shines with four and you can't really get around that. If you want some more flexibility, there's some other versions of the game. You could try Blocus Trigon. Now, this game uses triangle pieces instead of square pieces and the board is this big large hexagon but the game and the rules are exactly the same and, but the nice thing is it has a few of the rows that are blocked off in a different color so if you want to play with three players you play the same game but you just can't go into that four player area and so you've got a more flexible game it will work well with three or with four then there's Blocus 3D and Blocus 3D was really another game called Arumus but I think they wanted to expand the franchise, so they took Rumus and they changed the name to Blocus three D because you know, that'll increase sales because Blocus was a real very popular game. But it's a little bit different. You have three D shapes like almost blocks of your color. And there's a mat on where you can build up this block or tower or whatever you're trying to build and for each square there's a height limitation for how many squares high that you can build. When you place pieces on the board you must touch your own pieces at least once. It doesn't have to be diagonal, it just has to touch your piece. And the goal of the game is you want to have your pieces color visible from the top and whoever's pieces has the most pieces visible from a view from the top wins the game. It's a pretty neat game, but the blocks can be a bit fussy to put together, and there's this weird rule about you can't make holes, and sometimes they just don't stack like they should. Also, the height limit sometimes can be tough to remember because you actually cover that up as you place them on the board. It's not quite as elegant as just straight up Blokus, but it's a pretty neat game on its own right. So if you like Blokus, you might want to get Rumus or the same game, Blokus 3D. All right, so let's get to a two-player game. Let's talk about Hive. Hive is a two-player game. It takes about 30 minutes in Hive. You get these great chunky white and black hexagons. They're made of this really nice tactile material, and they come in this attractive travel bag with you know, the, the logo of the game on it. Each player has 14 of these pieces with different insects inset into the pieces. They're white and black, and, and the pieces have different colored insects in them. Each player has one queen bee, two spiders, two beetles, three crickets, and three ants. What is hive about? Well, the object of the game is to surround your opponent's queen bee. How do you play the game? Well, on each turn you'll either add a tile to the hive, the hive being the cluster of pieces that you're gonna build together on the board by placing pieces adjacent to each other, or you're gonna move a piece around the hive somewhere. To start, players need to start building the hive. You're gonna be playing tiles together to build this hive, and you must play your queen bee by the fourth piece you lay on the board. The first two pieces, white and black, they'll have to touch each other just to get the game going. But after those first pieces are played, when you add a tile to the board, you may only touch your own color. So if I'm black, I can only touch black edges when I add a piece to the board. After you play your B, then you have two options on your turn. You can add another piece to the board, remembering only to touch your color when you add that piece or now that you have your bee on the board, you're able to move one of the pieces in the hive to a different position. Now you have to follow a movement rule. Each insect, of course, moves in a little different way. There are five different pieces. Let's go over how they move. First of all, the ant. Ant's very fast and he scurries. He can move anywhere around the side of the hive. He can go completely to the other side if he wants to. It doesn't matter how far or how close it is, as long as it's around the outside. A spider is kind of a poor man's ant. He kind of does what the ant does, but he must move exactly three sides, either clockwise or counterclockwise around the hive. So you would have to count out one, two, three. Uh, So he only has two different options. He's definitely a little more limited than the ant. Now the cricket's pretty neat. The cricket must jump over the hive. He can't move along the outside. He must jump over at least one piece. He might jump over three or four pieces and he lands on the exact other side of where he jumped. Now the beetle can move slowly around the hive. He can move one space on the outside. Or the neat thing about the beetle is he can climb on top of the hive. You can take him and put him on top of an adjacent piece. The neat thing about walking on top of the hive is that the beetle actually traps the piece underneath it. So whatever it's on top of is stuck and it cannot move. And finally, the B. The B is very important because your opponent is gonna be trying to surround that. Uh, But the B is pretty chunky and he's pretty slow. So he's only allowed to move one space somewhere along the outside. But sometimes this can be a very powerful move to escape danger. Like let's say he's starting to get surrounded with three or four pieces. Just taking that B piece and moving in one spot can really just make your opponent very sad. There's a couple other rules about movement. Um, You can never separate the hive into two chunks. All the pieces must be connected at one time. And actually in that way you can kind of trap pieces by making them unable to move. Otherwise they will break up the hive. When you're taking a piece and moving it, you have to be able to slide it out. So some pieces can get trapped. Let's say you have an ant and there's five pieces around it. He can't really get out of there without actually moving one of the other pieces out of the way. So if pieces get surrounded and you can't slide them out, they're unable to move. And that's about the whole game. Players on their turn, is they're going to add a piece to the board, or they're going to move a piece on the board. And they'll alternate turns doing that until one player wins by surrounding the opponent's B. And keep in mind, it doesn't matter what colors are around the bee. It could be white or black, for example. It could be white's bee in there. It could be two of his pieces around and four of the black pieces around him. But the game is over. Black wins, white bee is surrounded. And that's Hive. Fun, original, exciting, strategic game. Footnotes for Hive. This is a great game. It has a nice learning curve. When you play it more, you'll start to learn different openings. You'll learn how to lock other pieces down, how to escape danger, different methods of attacking the opponent's queen bee. Uh, It's just a great game. There is an expansion to this game, uh, the Mosquito expansion, and it's basically two tiles. And I haven't played with it. It seemed a little expensive for just the two tiles you get. Uh, But the Mosquito, what he does is if he's next to a piece, he can move however a piece adjacent to it moves. Might add a little bit variety if you get tired of just the basic game. Another related game by the same designer is called Army of Frogs. And this was a whole game designed around the idea of the cricket's movement, uh, having these pieces just these frog pieces just jump over the rest of this cluster of adjacent hexagon pieces. The pieces are really neat. Uh, these frogs and they're speckled and, and they're cool looking. And it plays up to four people. But overall, I just didn't find it as strong of a game as Hive was. I found it a bit too random, as part of the game involves pulling pieces out of the bag, and that tells you which of the pieces you can move. And just overall, I didn't find it as strong of a game and as strategically interesting as Hive was. But if you love Hive, you may want to check it out. Alright, and finally, Yinch! you have to say it like that because it's all in capital letters you know you have to say it very loud and pronounced um, i think i would be very remiss if i did an abstract episode and didn't get into the gift series of games uh, the gift series or the gift project as they call it i guess is a series of two-player abstract games this particular one is very quick it plays in about i'd say 10 or 15 minutes and it's a great filler, and I'd sort of describe it as the beautiful love child of Othello and Connect Four, you know. It, but it's much deeper than either of those games. So what does Yinch look like? Well, you get this board; it's it's plain white, and it has a series of black lines on them at 60 degree angles. So what you end up with is all these lines with intersections on them and from each intersection you have six different directions you can go out of it in the game you have five black rings and five white rings you also have these reversible circular marker pieces they have blue borders and then they're black on one side and white on the other side and these circles fit perfectly inside the rings so what's yinch about Well, like I said, it kind of has a connect four element in that you're trying to get markers in a row. You want to get actually five of your white or black pieces in a row, depending on what color you're playing, of course. And if you do that three times before the other player, you win the game. So how do you play this game? Well, to set up the game, first you have to take turns placing these rings onto the board. The rings are what allow you to put more of the circular counters onto the board, and so where they are is pretty important. You take turns placing those at different intersections. Once all of the rings are on the board, the regular game begins and on a turn what you do is you take one of those circular tokens and you can place it inside any of your rings on the board. I'm white, so I take a white marker, I put it inside the ring and then I pick up the ring and I follow one of the lines and move it to somewhere else on the board. Where you place the rings is very important because one, they mark the places you can play more pieces on the board and the second thing is those rings have the ability to flip other pieces because when they move over any pieces, those pieces get flipped over to the other side. So obviously, it's nice to get them next to your opponent's colored pieces, because with one move, you can take your white ring, say, move over three black circle pieces and flip them over, and then you'll have four white pieces in a row. For example, say Plato is playing black. Plato takes his black ring, He puts one of his black counters inside one of his rings. Then he picks up his ring, moves down a line across three of Aristotle's white markers, places it down. Those markers get flipped over. So now Plato has four black pieces there in a row. He's almost got his five in a row. Aristotle will probably come and flip over some of those pieces back. But that's what you're trying to do. Get as many of your pieces' colors face up on a turn as you can. You need to be aware that moving over your own colored pieces does flip them to the other side. So if Plato moves over some of his black pieces when he moves that ring, he's going to flip them over to white. So you want to avoid doing that. But sometimes, say for example, you might move over a long line of pieces, say you're black again. And you might move over, say, three white pieces and one black piece. So you might be okay with that because you get overall more pieces flipped over. A couple of rules about moving the rings rings can only move over the circular tokens rings cannot jump over rings so in that way you can sort of use the rings to block other players from moving in certain directions also when you move your rings you can move them as far as you want but after you jump over some pieces or a group of pieces you have to immediately stop at the end of the jump so you're not allowed to double jump or move over some counters and then go two or three more spaces You must come down right after the end of the jump. So let's say you manage to get five pieces or more in a row. Hooray! You're a third of the way towards victory. What do you do? You take those five pieces, or say there were six of them, you choose five of them to take off. You take five of your black pieces, pull them off the board. So that's good news because you're one third of the way towards winning, but there's bad news also. To mark that you scored one point is you have to take one of your five rings, your choice, and pull it off the board. There's three inset circles in the board on your side. You take one of those rings and you place it down in that inset circle. And that marks how close you are to winning. The score is basically one to zero. So you're ahead in the game, but now if you look at the board, your opponent has five rings to move around the board and manipulate things. And you only have four rings, so you're a little bit at a disadvantage. I just love this mechanic, I think it's brilliant. So as you get ahead, you get penalized a little bit for being closer to victory. So you continue the game in this way until someone gets five in a row three times, and they win the game. Footnotes. Alright, so that's Yinch, and I love Yinch. It's currently my favorite abstract game, I'll play it any time. It's nice and quick. And every time it's, it's very different. It's a very tactical game, but it also has some strategy to it as well. I think initially, though, what's interesting is I was always a little bit put off by the GIF series um, or GIF project, uh, you know, with its pretentious names and capital letters and these boxes with like lightning bolts on them and things. Uh, but I, I'm really glad I gave this game a chance. It's, it is my favorite abstract game. I hope you'll check it out. I liked it so much, I tried a couple of the other GIF games. Unfortunately, I think I was a little less impressed with some of the other games in the series. Uh, I'll t- talk a little bit about those different games. Gipf itself is a strange one. You're trying to slide pieces onto a grid, kinda like Connect Four, but you can add pieces to the grid from six different angles. And you're trying to get four of your pieces in a row, and then you get your pieces back. Because if you get all your pieces you know, stuck on the board, then you're gonna lose. You also capture pieces by having your opponent's pieces next to your group of four in a row. It's an okay game, but I didn't find it very intuitive. I also got Zerts. In Zerts, you have this large playing area of marble holders, and you're going to add these marbles to the board, and every time you do that, you're going to take some of the marble holders away, and then you're trying to capture marbles by being able to jump them. It's a little strange and I I just didn't get it and and didn't find it very fun. Maybe I need to play it a few more times, but though I would recommend Czar, I got a chance to play that one once. And it was along the same kind of lines as Yinch. The rules were very simple and intuitive. It was easy to learn, but it seemed very deep and the best way I guess I could describe it was is sort of an advanced version of Checkers, I guess. Then there's the enticing proposition that you can combine games from the different series that advertises as part of the GIF project. And that sounded really cool. It sounded like this really neat idea in theory. But then I figured out how it works. How it actually works is you get GIF. You have to have GIF and then some of the other games in the series. You play a regular game of GIF, and some of the pieces are called potentials. They have markings on them, which I think are actually pretty hard to read. For example, you might have a yinch potential piece as you're playing the game GIF. And those pieces have an ability to do something special in the game. All right, cool, my, my yinch potential. But they're only potentials. They only have the potential to do that special move. So you play this game of GIF and you've got your yinch potential piece. And then you say, I want to use my yinch potential. So what do you do? You freeze this game, and then you go set up a game of yinch, and you play a game of yinch. And if you win the game of yinch, then you get to go back to the game of gif, and you get to do your special move. Ugh. (laughs) I don't I don't know about you, but when I play an abstract game, I just want I want to play it for 20 or 30 minutes, be done and play a different game. I don't want to play games within games within games. It's a little bit too convoluted for me. If, if I'm looking for a game, I want the game to be a game within its own right and, and the, this combining of games, it sounded like a good idea, but the way it is implemented, I, I'm not too thrilled about it. But I do suggest you pick up Yinch. Yinch is a great game, and I think you'll just love it. So those are the five games I wanted to talk about. I hope you heard about one or two that sounded interesting to you. Again, we had Take It Easy, which is bingo with decisions. You've got those tiles, and you're trying to put them in the best possible scoring combinations. We had Uptown, which is the game where you're putting tiles on a board, trying to solidify them into small groups. We had Blocus, where you have those cool square tetris-like pieces and you're trying to get to the whole board so that you can use all your pieces we had hive which you've got those different insects moving around uh, this configuration of chunky tiles and you're trying to surround your opponent's bee and we have yinch which you're moving rings around the board and placing counters in and moving the rings and flipping over pieces trying to get five in a row all five great games check them out so let's muse a little bit about abstract games. I have a few thoughts about abstract games and abstract games versus thematic games. I was thinking about some of the things I really like about abstract games, different than some of the other games I usually talk about, some of the Euro games uh, we talk about here on how to play, things like you know, Agricola, Age of Empires, Age of Steam, all of that. Abstract games do a lot of things differently that is just kind of a nice, refreshing change of pace. Most of the time, they're very easy to set up. You basically pull the board out and you're good to go. They're usually very accessible and you can explain the rules in about two minutes. And abstracts that don't do some of those things I just mentioned, maybe they're too complicated or too hard to set up or too many rules. For me, I don't really want that in an abstract. Maybe other people do. And one of the abstracts I would use as an example of that, is Through the Desert. It has kind of a theme, I guess. You're putting camels in the desert. But really, like Uptown, Uptown is a theme. Through the Desert is an abstract game. But the thing I don't really like about through the desert is it has all these oasis chips and so you got to put this board down and there's like 40 oasis chips and you got to set them all out and then it has five different colors of camels and you got to get those and get those all in separate piles and it has like three different kinds of scoring tokens and get those all out and you play the game the game takes like 15 minutes you play the game and then you have to sort it all and put it all back and the setup and takedown of this game is actually longer than, than the game itself. <laughs> I don't know, if I'm gonna do all that setup, say like in a game like Agricola, I want the gameplay of the game to be worthy of setting all those pieces up. It's a decent game, it's all right, but but nothing really that exciting or thrilling. Like I said, I started picking up these games when I was hunting up games for my game club, games that would work for kids. And I found a a lot of games that were really successful at at doing that. A lot of these games do work very well with kids. Although, you know, the funny thing is, just like with adults, sometimes games that are abstract games, because they are abstract, they just have, you know, pieces of squares or circles or white and black pieces on the cover. It's hard to get kids really excited about playing them. I think it's the, the same thing is true with adults, you know, with a Colosseum, you've got like a roman knight on the cover and there's some people that are going to be immediately attracted to that and want to start playing the game there's very few people that are going to see you know blue and red squares on a box and say "Ooh, wow let's try that so you really have to just say this this is a really cool game let's give this a shot you know you kind of got to sell these abstract games as a lot of times without the theme they don't really sell themselves and let's look at the other side of the coin there's so many games out there with these great themes and and illustrations and the gameplay is just terrible and if the gameplay is terrible you can't really get caught up in the theme unless you know you already love the theme so much that you can just sort of ignore the brutal gameplay you know there's some games that really aren't as good as people make them out to be they just simply like them because of the theme or they like them maybe more than the average person simply because of the theme. You know, I can think of quite a few games that I really like because they are of a particular theme and maybe the gameplay isn't particularly that great. Some of the games I can think of off the top of my head, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, the World Cup game. You know, Lord of the Rings is this cooperative game. I don't, I don't really like the cooperative element at all it's sort of a one-player game disguised as a multiplayer game but the art on these boards and all the playing the different characters and going through from scene to scene in the game I think is really fun as a person who loves that story I look at Game of Thrones this theme I I just love Game of Thrones it's my favorite book I love the series but this game has gotten me to appreciate a game that normally I wouldn't even touch because Game of Thrones is really basically a war game and it, it has a lot of diplomacy in it and it's four hours long and normally I would never want to play this game but since it's got the Lannisters and the Starks and I can be the Lannisters and try to take the Iron Throne, because of, simply because of that, I want to play that game. And then you've got the World Cup game. The mechanics are are kind of neat and and original, but really I just like seeing how the the scores in the groups and how the top 16 move forward and I like to imagine the matchups in my head. And the group stage is is pretty fun, you're playing goals in the different groups, but then the, the different teams go to the round of 16 and the gameplay pretty much denigrates into essentially a series of coin flips. Yet I still find it fun because it's World Cup, and it's France versus Brazil, or Germany versus China, or whoever it might be. And and I just play that out in my head, and I think it's a lot more fun than maybe the gameplay actually warrants. I know there's a lot of other games like this people love because of their thematic nature or the storytelling element. And I think sometimes they don't realize how... Others don't buy into that theme, and, and they don't really experience the same joy that that the game host does because, you know, that story that's being told doesn't quite hold the same excitement for, for them. I definitely felt both sides of this, being the person caught up in whatever the thematic experience of the game was, as well as being the person who was in a game where you, you couldn't give a lick about the theme or the story being unfolded and just trying to play a game and being completely underwhelmed by the game. Some of these storytelling type games that I might refer to would be, you know, Betrayal at House on the Hill or Ghost Stories or Tales of the Arabian Nights, which is basically like a choose your own adventure game or Last Night on Earth or what some people might call the granddaddy of thematic experience games arkham horror and you know if you you get into that story about this giant monster chasing you around the board and collecting you know machine guns and things and if if you buy into that you can really have a great time but if you don't and you're trying to play it as say a strategic game i think you're definitely going to be disappointed A lot of those games I just mentioned, they're more, I would say, experiences than they are actually games. Not that that is a bad thing, just depends on what you're looking for from your game. So what actually is an abstract game? What differentiates an abstract game from a thematic game? Well I've heard it argued from some that all games are actually abstract and that theme only exists as a way to remember rules. But I disagree. I think there definitely are thematic games. For me, a thematic game is a game in which the mechanics of the game are somehow tied together thematically. You know, look at Agricola. Many examples of thematic integration can be found in this game. You know, the way the breeding of the animals works, the growing of the corn, the family growth action. You know, last episode I talked about Age of Empires and how those specialists are tied to thematically what those people would want to do. I think that's what makes theme. Having mechanics in the game that that somehow are tied to something else. So what makes a game abstract? Well, a game is abstract to me when if you remove the theme from the game, it would have no impact on your enjoyment of the game. For example, let's look at Uptown. In Uptown, for some reason, the designer decided to give it a theme of the Roaring Twenties. I don't know how he came up with that. I'm guessing he took all of the possible themes in the whole world, he he threw them in a hat, pulled one out, and the Roaring Twenties came out. You know, if we change those Roaring Twenties symbols to shapes, the game wouldn't be any better or worse. I think the game would be exactly as fun. Or what if he pulled out something else? I don't know, let's think of the stupidest theme we could think of. How about taxidermy? And all the symbols were different animal heads. Would that make the game any better or worse? Actually, I think that might be a little bit better. You know, you, you could see it in your head of trying to connect your wall display of animals' heads on your Alaskan cabin. And yeah, I think that's way better. And the title, Taxidermy, or, or Mounted Animal Heads. Yes, yes, that would be far, far better. I'm getting off track. The point is that a great abstract game the game play is so good, it doesn't even miss or need thematic integration or storytelling. Whereas a bad abstract game will just be plain boring and there isn't even the failsafe of Theme to save it or make it enjoyable to some people. Heck, a lot of times, Theme just masks how bad a game actually is. I mean, can you imagine some of these licensed, mass market games and you took away the thematic tie-in? Oof, that would probably be the worst game imaginable. And then sometimes you get cases, for example, Agricola, or Age of Empires, or Age of Steam, and you get this marriage that is a beautiful combination of both theme and mechanics. But to be honest, doesn't theme make game design a little bit easier? I mean, I have to say, a person who can find a new way to move white and black pieces around a grid and have people fall in love with that game, or maybe even dedicate their lives to that game, I mean, that has got to be genius. There's a reason some of these classics, chess, go, backgammon, have been around for hundreds or thousands of years. These games are brilliant and immortal. What games will people be playing in another thousand years? It's hard to tell, but somehow I doubt that our progeny will be pushing around animeeples. Well, that about wraps it up for today. Thanks everybody for listening. I want to say, A big thank you to everyone who has helped to support this show. We reached our goal of 100 guild members, and so I, as a special treat, I am not going to grovel here for minutes upon minutes and just waste your time. I'm not going to tell you to go to BoardGameGeek and join the guild. I'm not going to tell you to go to the website and donate money. I am not going to tell you to go to iTunes and write a review or rate the show. I'm not going to tell you to go to all your friends and convince them to listen to this fantastic show. I'm, I'm not gonna do that because you've been so great in helping me to promote this show. So thank you so much. I think it's close enough that I could probably make an announcement for what episode number 12 is going to be. We did a fun little survey there at the Guild asking some questions about the show. And a lot of the poll is still there available if you want to go and vote. But one of those questions is going to close, and that is what's going to be the next episode. As of right now, we're about 12 hours away from the poll being closed. Over 30 people voted in the poll, and it looks like we're going to have Reef Encounter eke it out over Colosseum and La Chita and a couple of others. Um, Those other ones are probably going to stay on my radar for games in the future, but unless something drastic happens, it seems like we'll have the next episode be on Reef Encounter. That was a lot of fun, I'll probably do it again sometime in the future. If I do it again, I probably have fewer episode choices just to make the vote a little more interesting, but thanks everybody for going in and having your voice heard. And it seems like in two weeks or so, we will have episode number 12 on Reef Encounter. But for now, it's time to say goodbye, dear listeners. You know, this was supposed to be the short episode, and somehow we ended up still at about an hour. Well, at some point I'll do a short episode. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play podcast.